Matthew 18, 15 to 20. So when I was in college, um, I was the leader one year uh, in the Christian fellowship on campus, and it was the time of year when we were selecting the new small group leaders for the following year. We were considering uh, the different um, possibilities, and there was one young leader who we were considering, and then it came to light that she was engaged in what we considered to be a questionable lifestyle. And so after discussing this for a while and what should we do, we decided that at this point in time, her lifestyle disqualified her from being a leader. And I forget how we informed her about that, but I do remember vividly what the result was when she ended up at my door red in the face. How could you have made such a decision without even having the decency to talk to me about it personally, she asked. Why did you rely on what you heard from other people? And you know, she was absolutely right. And thankfully, some profuse and heartfelt apologizing on my part patched up that relationship. But the situation taught me an important lesson, and that is that it's best to follow Jesus' instructions. The instructions I'm talking about are found in today's passage. In this passage, Jesus tackles the problem of sin in God's family. In this passage, Jesus tells us what we're to do when someone else sins, someone who's a part of Jesus' family, God's family. Now, for a minute before we dig into this passage and look, what Jesus, look at what Jesus' instructions are, I want to point out an important detail which affects how we understand what Jesus is saying here. And that's in verse 15. I have the, the new, recently updated, New International Version translation here. And it reports that Jesus says in verse 15, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. But the original NIV, on the other hand, that many of you have in, in the seats there, says, if they sin against you, go and point out the fault. So which is it that we're talking about here? Sin in general or sin against you? Is this passage about what to do when you see someone else in God's family sin? Or is this passage about what to do when someone else in God's family offends or hurts you personally? big difference, right? <laughs> well, the reason for the discrepancy between these two translations has to do with the Greek manuscripts that are used to translate the Bible into English. The Bible was originally written in Greek, or at least the New Testament was, and we have thousands of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament in existence today. Far more manuscript, uh, manuscripts, by the way, than for any other ancient document that we possess. The thing is, though, there are sometimes minor differences between various ones of these Greek manuscripts, where a scribe a millennia ago uh, made an error or two as they were hand-copying these manuscripts. Now, sometimes when two manuscripts disagree, it's quite clear which one contains the error. But other times it's not so clear, and so scholars debate which one's correct. Now, you'll be happy to know that no major Christian belief rests on any of these disagreements. That all of these thousands of manuscripts are in resounding agreement about almost everything significant contained in the New Testament. 
But this verse in Matthew is one of the rare places where these manuscripts don't agree and the scholars have a tough time deciding what's right. Is Jesus teaching about instances where someone sins against us personally or is Jesus talking uh, only about, or sorry, about any case where we see a, a fellow follower of Jesus sin? In the end, we just can't know for sure. And, and so this morning, I'm going to assume that we should apply Jesus' teaching here to both situations. That seems like the best way to proceed. So the first thing I want us to notice about this passage is that Jesus doesn't specify what kind of sin he's talking about here. I mean, for sure, we should confront someone if they've cheated on their spouse or they've robbed a bank, but what if they just said something unkind to another person? How serious does the sin have to be before Jesus' instructions come into play? Well, as we'll see, Jesus doesn't give us an answer. Because the issue isn't so much the severity of the sin as it is the attitude you have when someone confronts you on it. We'll see that as we go on. So, you become aware that a fellow follower of Jesus sins in some way, whether against you personally or not. What do you do? Or maybe you want to take a second even now to think of someone you feel um, has wronged you in some way. What would Jesus have you do to handle that situation? Jesus says, go to them and point out the fault just between the two of you. Notice some ways Jesus is not telling us to handle the situation here. First, he does not tell us to do nothing. Jesus won't allow us to just brood in our anger or our judgmental spirit toward the other person. He won't allow us to just keep it all inside and hope it goes away. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I'd rather not have those hard conversations or, or confront people and make myself and them uncomfortable. And so if you're like me, let me tell you, this is where we've got to trust God if we're going to follow Jesus' instructions here. We're going to have to step out in faith. We're going to have to choose to obey Jesus even if we don't want to, even if it's scary, because Jesus promises us elsewhere in God's word that he will give us the strength to obey if we choose to obey. In, in fact, that's what the Christian life is all about. God's power revealed in our weakness when we choose to be faithful to him, even when it's hard. Sometimes we need to do the hard things with God's help, in order to find the healing and the reconciliation that Jesus wants us to enjoy. Second, when, when we see someone sin, Jesus does not tell us to just go talk it over with a few of our closest friends or family members. Just behind closed doors, just people we trust and are comfortable with, and, and uh, that way we can get it off our chest. No, Jesus says, go to the person. Don't talk about them. Talk to them. Because, ah, <laughs> because here's what happens when, when you hurt me or you upset me. And instead of me going to you about it, I go and I talk to a few of my friends instead. I go to my friends. I, I tell them my side of the story. I tell them how I've been wronged by you. And they get mad at you with me, right? 
They think less of you. They, they can't believe you did that. They, they're hurt now on my behalf because of you. But of course, there's nothing they can do about it. They're not supposed to know. <laughs> they haven't talked to you. They don't know your side of the story. In fact, I may later work it out with you. I may forgive you. I may reconcile with you. But they can't do that because it's not really about them. And so they're stuck with their negative feelings about you. Long after maybe I've worked it out or moved on. And so there's tension in the relationship between you and them. And you may not even know why. Do you see what a mess this can become? That's why Jesus says, go to the person. Talk to them. No one else. Work it out directly with them. Talk to them, not about them. Third way Jesus does not tell us to handle it, related to the second, Jesus does not tell us to gossip about it, to, to pass it on, to whisper it in people's ears. Did you hear what that person said, what that person did? Do you know the awful thing that she said to me? Fourth, Jesus does not tell us to make the whole thing public. We're not to bring it to the whole church or to even to its leaders. To do this would be to publicly humiliate the person, and you'll never find Jesus encouraging this unless all other efforts have failed. No, Jesus says, first, go to the person privately, just between the two of you, and work it out. Talk to them, not about them. Go humbly, I'll add. Not in anger or a judgmental spirit, but with gentleness and a strong awareness that you've got plenty of faults too. In the process, you might find as you talk to the person that there's been a misunderstanding. One thing I've learned over the years is, is always to ask questions before I level accusations. I've had misunderstandings even with my kids um, where I'll tell, let's say, Rachel, Rachel, no more cookies. And let's say a few, more, a few minutes later, I catch her with her hand in the cookie jar. What if I launch in and I berate her for her disobedience? And, and then she says in all innocence and with hurt feelings, but mommy asked me to get her a cookie. <laughs> right? Then I'm the one who has to apologize. I've leveled accusations before I've asked questions. A number of years ago during the Super Bowl, there were a series of ads by a mortgage company, I think. And, and their message was, don't judge too quickly. One I remember showed a convenience store shopper on the cell phone, standing at the counter, talking to a friend. And he says to his friend on the other line, you're getting robbed. Well, the two store clerks hear those words, and they react by blasting the man with pepper spray, by slugging him with a baseball bat in self-defense, they think, zapping him with an electric cattle prod. <laughs> Don't judge too quickly. <laughs> In another commercial in this series, a man is preparing a romantic dinner. He's got nice music in the background. He's busy chopping vegetables with a big knife, and there's tomato sauce simmering nicely on the stove. And then all of a sudden, his white cat jumps on the counter and knocks the pan of tomato sauce on the floor. Then the cat falls off the counter into the tomato sauce, rolling around in the mess. And the man picks up his tomato-splattered cat, he, and at that moment... His wife opens the door. <laughs> she sees the cat dripping red and a large knife in the man's hand. <laughs> Don't judge too quickly. 
First, ask questions before you level accusations. Honey, are you killing our cat? <laughs> no, dear, can't you see I'm making a romantic dinner for us? <laughs> Misunderstandings can easily happen in relationships, right? Roy Jensen, who's a magazine writer, <clears throat> tells about one time he showed up at a friend's house and he rang the doorbell and he recounts that he was supposed to bring some chairs and he opened the door and uh, the guy who answered the door said, Ron, where are the chairs? And he says, well, I forgot. <laughs> and this man glared at him and barks, that figures. Now Ron recounts that he thought, that figures. He thinks I'm no good. He thinks I can't follow through. He thinks I'm useless. And he says, then I thought, who does he think he is? The creep? I'll bet he's got a problem or two. But then he says, I decided I had two options. I could believe the best about what he was saying, although that was pretty tough, and just forget about it. Or I could ask him what he meant, even though it seemed obvious to me. A couple weeks later, I saw him and I, I brought it up. I said, you know the other day when, when I was at your house and I forgot to bring the chairs and you said that figures? He interrupted me and he said, I shouldn't have said that. And I continued, I was wondering what you meant. Well, he said, all day long that day, in every meeting, someone had forgotten something. It just figured. So he wasn't saying, Jensen, you're a jerk. He was saying, my day's been terrible. It's so easy to misunderstand. So we've got to go to the person. We've got to hear them out. We might find that there wasn't really a problem in the first place. And we've saved ourselves either from stewing about it for weeks or from spreading it around to others and unnecessarily damaging the other person's reputation. Or if we do find there's a problem and the, the person really has sinned, then we can gently give him or her a chance to confess it and ask for forgiveness. Now, what's the goal of this? It's, it's not to put the other person in their place. It's not to make them pay for what they've done and make sure they go away feeling ashamed of it. It's not to see them squirm. It's not to watch them grovel. No, it's to win them over, Jesus says. To win them over. In hopes that they'll see their fault, they'll ask for forgiveness of God and of you if necessary. So the relationship can be mended and they can get right with God. Folks, these kinds of conversations should happen as a, a matter of course in God's family. As we quickly, as we gently clear up our differences and humbly confront one another about our sins. Keeping short accounts with one another and with God. But what if the one-on-one -on -one doesn't work? What if it doesn't go well? What if they won't listen? What if they get angry or defensive? Then Jesus says, don't give up too easily. Try again. But this time, bring one or two others along. Don't let the matter go. Don't stew in your anger. Don't go now and gossip about it, telling everyone how hard and unrepentant the person is. Give it another shot. Just you and them, but now with one or two others present as witnesses. I suggest when you're picking people to bring along, you pick people who are wise and people who the person you need to confront trusts and respects. 
Not, you know, the heavies that are in your court who are going to go help you beat up on them. But someone they'll appreciate and respect. Now, there are a couple reasons for bringing these other witnesses. First of all, if this is a, a conflict between you and the other person, hopefully these witnesses are more objective than the two of you are. And, and they might realize as, as you have this conversation with the other person that it's actually you who's in the wrong. Or, or maybe when you confront the other person again and the other person tells their side of the story, that the witnesses will say to you, wait a minute, I think you're being too hard on the guy. Or uh, maybe they'll say to you, we don't think you understand what she's really trying to say to you. She didn't mean it the way you took it. Or, or maybe they'll say, I think you're being overly sensitive here. I think you need to give the guy a break. Then these others can help the two of you communicate better and work out your differences. As Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. A second reason to bring one or two others, though, is so they can serve as witnesses to the conversation. That way, someone else saw how the other person responded when you confronted them. If the other person has genuinely sinned and, and you've tried a second time to point it out and they've remained stubborn and recalcitrant, then you have witnesses to that fact who can stand with you on the third step that Jesus now gives, which Jesus says is to bring the matter before the church. Now, by this point, the main issue is no longer the other person's sin. Sins can be forgiven if we'll confess them, even big sins. We, we confess them and we move on. But, but the real problem, if, if things reach this third step, is that the other person won't confess their sin. They're, they're being hard-hearted. They're being unrepentant about what they've done. They've been confronted twice. The witnesses have agreed that, that, it's, that it's not your problem, that there really is an issue here. But, but the other person still won't admit that that they've done anything wrong or they're unwilling to deal with it. At this point, we're not dealing with a sin issue anymore. We're dealing with a gospel issue. This person claims to be a follower of Jesus. They claim that they know that they're a sinner and that they need Jesus' death on the cross to forgive their sins. They, they sing with the rest of the congregation and church, Oh, how to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. They sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But in real life, they don't really believe this. They'll admit their need for Christ's forgiveness in theory, but when push comes to shove, they won't reach out for God's grace in real life situations. Despite the fact they may mouth all the right words, they've proved with their life that they're not broken and humble about their sin and that they're not relying on God's grace to forgive and save them. And so they need more than anything else to realize this about themselves because they're in grave spiritual peril. And so it's time to bring it to the church, Jesus says, because we've got a serious gospel problem now. Now, back in Jesus' day, the culture was very different from ours. And most people back then uh, lived in small communities, often villages or tribes or synagogues, which had their own traditional methods of justice. These groups, and especially their elders in these close-knit communities, were much more experienced uh, than we are today at handling disputes and legal matters. 
And back then, your community also was your whole life. And if you got kicked out of it, you were an outcast. You had nowhere else to go. And this was true of local churches in that day, too. If you got kicked out of your local church in your village, you were out in the cold, spiritually speaking, because there was no other church to go to. So given that our culture today is very different from that, how do we apply Jesus' teaching about this third step today? We today are far less experienced, most of us, in uh, handling legal-type cases. We've also got, into, got to take into account the relevant government laws, which uh, are about uh, privacy and defamation of character and various human rights issues, which may relate to situations like this. Also, if we were to put someone out of our church today, they could just head down the road to another church anyway. And if they went to a fairly large church, they could remain anonymous there for a long time. So how do we apply Jesus' teaching here to ourselves today? Very, very carefully. That's how. (laughs) First of all, we go very slowly and, and carefully because we recognize that most of us aren't experts in matters of justice and law. In some cases, we may need to get legal counsel before we even proceed. Also, we have to recognize that today it's illegal to make the details of someone's personal life publicly known against their will. That's one reason our church bylaws delegate this kind of church discipline to a smaller group of church leaders or church elders rather than having it be publicized publicly. The other reason our bylaws do this is that other scriptures hold our church leaders responsible for addressing these kind of matters. We want to give people as much privacy as possible. Now, if a matter is brought before the whole church or before the leaders who represent the whole church, Jesus still calls for mercy. He asks that the church give the the unrepentant person one more chance to soften their heart and admit their wrong. Because again, the goal here is not to embarrass them. It's not to punish them, but to win their hearts back to the God who wants to forgive them. And so we're to plead with them to to soften their hearts, to confess their wrong, and to accept God's forgiveness and our forgiveness so we can all be reconciled. But if they still refuse, Jesus charges the church, based on the testimony of several witnesses, to put the person out of the community. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, Jesus says. Now, Jesus was pretty welcoming of pagans and tax collectors, right? Do you know anything about Jesus? Particularly as they humbled themselves and asked him for forgiveness. But if they refused, then love them though we may, love them though Jesus does, they were clearly on the outside of the whole Jesus thing. And God's family is to treat such people the same way as well, Jesus says. Again, not so much to punish them, as as to show them where they really are choosing to stand in relation to Jesus. Again, the ultimate goal is still restoration. It's, It's the hope that this drastic action will cause the person to come to their senses, to turn from their willful sin, and to seek forgiveness and restoration. Jesus further underlines the stakes here in verses 18 to 22. He says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth, will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
Now, these are kind of enigmatic words, but what Jesus seems to be saying here is if the church treats someone like they're on the outside, then God treats them that way too. And if the church welcomes them back, then God welcomes them back too. Now, I think Jesus is assuming here that the church hasn't made a big mistake in judgment. I don't think God is at the mercy of our blunders, our foolishness, but that when we really are in tune with God, we represent down here what the situation is in heaven. Jesus continues, again, truly I tell you that if two or three of you agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Now, why does he, it seems like he's switching from what he's been talking about to, to prayer now. And I think what Jesus is saying here, just kind of like launching right into prayer, is that we better be really prayerful about this whole thing. And if we are, Jesus will come, a God will come through for us to help us make sure that his will gets done in this situation. Because Jesus promises us, when even two or three of you gather together, I myself will be there with you. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts this in his message translation. Take this most seriously. A yes on earth is yes in heaven. A no on earth is no in heaven. When you say to one, or what you say to one another is eternal. I mean this. When two of you get together on anything at all on earth and make it a prayer, make a prayer of it, my Father in heaven goes into action. And when two or three of you together, or are together because of me, you can be sure that I'll be there. God cares about our relationships. God cares about way that, the way we treat one another. God cares about our sins and our words and our behaviors and our lifestyles. And God cares about whether we are really depending on his forgiveness as we humbly recognize our faults, our sins, and ask Jesus to wash us clean, to give us new beginnings, and to help us move on. And so God gives us the awesome responsibility of being agents of his care for one another in this passage. Let me close with this story. It's a story told by a, a pastor named James Needham about one morning when he sat at a local restaurant. He recounts, I noticed a finely dressed man at an adjacent table. His Armani suit and stiffly pressed shirt coordinated perfectly with a power tie. His wingtip shoes sparkled from a recent shine. Every hair was in place, including his perfectly groomed mustache. The man sat alone, eating a bagel as he prepared for a meeting. As he reviewed the papers before him, he appeared nervous, glancing frequently at his Rolex watch. It was obvious he had an important meeting ahead. Then the man stood up, and I watched as he straightened his tie and prepared to leave. Immediately, I noticed a blob of cream cheese attached to his finely groomed mustache. He was about to go out into the world dressed in his finest, finest with cream cheese on his face. I thought of the business meeting he was about to attend. Who would tell him? Should I? What if no one did? Those are the questions each of us is faced with when we see a brother or sister sin or when we believe we've been wronged by them? What's the loving thing to do? 
Tell the man. (laughs) That's what Jesus tells us, no matter hard or awkward it may be for us, that this is the way we handle things in God's family. Jesus wants us to personally go and help them out, rather than talking about them, to go and talk to them in love. May it be so among us.